Hello and welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spedok. I'm here with Dr. Hilary Link. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Joshua. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you here. And I'm going to start off with the first, the beginning of your bio. You're the head of Allegheny College in Pennsylvania, not, actually not too far from where I grew up in Philadelphia, and even closer to where my father grew up in, in, he grew up in Pittsburgh, and you guys are right up by Lake Erie, if I understand, right? That is correct. And you have, you are one of the first 10 institutions in the, of higher education in the United States to achieve carbon neutrality. And you yourself, okay, so from your bio, you have more than 20 years experience across a broad range of institutions of higher education, from large public and private universities to small private colleges. You built programs, increased resources, enhanced institutional visibility, and created innovative interdisciplinary and experiential approaches to education. That means a lot to me. It's the experiential approach because I love teaching project-based learning and experiential learning. And well, also before you're at Allegheny, you're at Temple University where my father was a, is just now retired a couple months ago. Uh, he was emeritus for a while. He taught history there. And you teach Italian you, you just told me before, Italian history or Italian literature? Italian literature, I think. So I am a scholar of Renaissance Italian literature and art. And all of my work has actually been at the intersection of those two lenses onto the world, the artistic lens and the literary lens. And then I think that sounds, I mean, it sounds like that's some beautiful stuff to work on. And then I think of administration at universities, and I think that must be difficult to transition to that. Was that a difficult transition or have you enjoyed it? So I have enjoyed it. I have actually always been drawn more, I think, to the administrative side of things. I am a uh, roll up your sleeves, action oriented person who also really enjoys taking, taking a step back and kind of having a big vision and then taking the actions to move an institution forward. So what's funny about your question and I talk a lot about this, is that my academic training of learning to analyze and see the world through two completely different lenses, a literary lens and an artistic lens. So first of all, it's actually what drew me to Allegheny College because our entire approach is based on a required major and a minor in two completely different disciplines. So again, that intersectionality of what do you see when you intersect two completely different fields and two completely different views on the world. But it's actually also been incredibly helpful as a leader of an institution, whether here in Meadville, Pennsylvania, as you say, right up by Lake Erie, or when I was running Temple University's campus in Rome and really intersecting the U.S. perspective, the Italian perspective. So I'm all about kind of multiple lenses and seeing big problems from lots of different places. And what brings what brings us together now is academics and carbon neutrality and the environment, which is, as we're speaking, COP26 is going on. The recording will go up a bit later. And I was just watching TEDx had their big second countdown event. And uh, I mean, this is what everyone is talking about, certainly this podcast. And... <laughs> So to be on the forefront, was that a decision? You've been there, I think, two or three years. And was that a decision that you brought in or was that something that was there before? No, it's actually really interesting. So I say all the time, I can take very little credit for Allegheny achieving carbon neutrality in that it was not even my predecessor, but it was his predecessor 
who initially signed on to the president's climate action commitment. And he did that officially in 2007. And one of the really interesting things about Allegheny, which Allegheny College, again, which as you say, is one of the first 10 colleges or universities in the country to achieve carbon neutrality, is that we've kind of done it by complete interdisciplinary approaches and sheer force of will. (laughs) And I say that because we're the institution with the smallest endowment and the smallest operating budget of all of those institutions. But we're also an institution that has shown that it's so embedded in kind of the, the blood and the ethos of this place that two presidential transitions have just automatically continued what Richard Cook, my predecessor's predecessor in 2007, set out to do. So when I arrived in July of 2019, we had about a year left to achieve our goal of carbon neutrality in 2020. And partly because this is something I've been interested in in a long time, but partly because it was so clear to me that this is one of the absolute highest institutional priorities that it was a joy for me to come to a campus that had come so far and was committed to going even farther to carbon neutrality. Well, I'm curious about both the the history of the past 14 years of what that meant before you were there, and also mm-hmm. on a personal level, what did it look like for you? Because you're coming into accountability and so forth, and that's got to be a personal decision that, that that's going to factor into your joining. And do you mind if we start with the, the history of things that happened before you were there? Was it a difficult decision for the university? How does it affect campus life for students, for faculty, for alumni? So I think it affects all of those constituencies, and I would add in our local community in really positive ways. So all of this actually started way back in 2002 with our board of trustees. I think this is also one of the interesting pieces of Allegheny stories that this came from the top leadership on down. The board of trustees basically set environmentally sound practices, and they signed what they called environmental guiding principles. And the board did this, and there are a couple board members who are actually still on our, they're still members of our board of trustees, for whom environmental sustainability and environmental action is the most important thing that our college can do in our local region and in the higher education community. So they started this. Our president at the time, as I mentioned, he's a chemist, but environmental work was really important to him. So they committed to following these guiding principles He signed on to this climate commitment to say that by 2020, we would be carbon neutral. And the other piece that's really interesting is where we're located. It's cold, right? (laughs) Well, but we're also, we're in Northwest Pennsylvania, right? That uh, there's a lot of fracking that goes on Mm -hmm. here. This is not necessarily an area that people think of as being a leader regionally in sustainable practices. But Allegheny 
just committed to it. And what's interesting to your question about alumni and students and faculty, this is an all-in effort. And it's how we've been able to do this without a big budget, because we have a director of sustainability. I say she's like a one-person show. I mean, she is just everywhere, but she is very embedded in our environmental science and sustainability department, the academic department. She co-teaches a lot of classes. She's an Allegheny alum herself who studied environmental science here. The students are incredibly committed to this. So everything from green lunch boxes, right, to reduce waste on campus to their senior projects, uh, many of which are action oriented. And as you mentioned at the beginning, project based learning uh, to our alums, many of whom have gone on to all different levels of careers in the environment. So it's become something in which we all take a great deal of pride. And as I mentioned, in terms of the region and our local community, we are now doing outreach into our local community on sustainable practices and creating a sustainable climate action plan for Meadville and for Crawford County, where we're located. So it's been something that everyone from top to bottom is committed to. Now I want to ask about your your decision to take on this responsibility and uh, put yourself in the in the seat. Was it? I think I heard you say that you you're enthusiastic about it. But it's one thing to care, and it's another thing to put yourself on, uh, hold yourself, be held accountable in the public. Mm-hmm. Was that hard? Was it? Was it just no brainer? So it's such an interesting question because I've often been asked this, given the you know passing of the baton twice now with the college maintaining its commitment to sustainability. To me, it was never a question. And actually, I'll tell you a funny story because you've been to Temple Rome and you can imagine we actually created a miniature sustainable garden in my last two years at Temple Rome, where uh, you probably know there's a huge artistic foundation to that campus. And we grew plants that then could be used, for example, in our printmaking studio as a dye or in our papermaking studios. So I've always been interested in trying to do whatever small part I could uh, toward the environment. I'm also a mother of three young children. I care deeply about the world that we're leaving to our to our children. So coming to Allegheny that, you know, the fact that Allegheny College has this outright, very explicit commitment to not just achieving carbon neutrality, but to creating a sustainable and resilient campus and a sustainable and resilient community. It really was right in the sweet spot of what I was excited about in continuing to raise the profile of this institution. I say all the time, Allegheny is like this hidden gem that more people should know about. The fact that we've achieved carbon neutrality when so many institutions have either let that fall aside, right, as a priority or haven't devoted enough resources to doing it. The fact that everybody on this campus will talk to you about the efforts towards sustainability, it was 
a joy to come to a place that is just out front and center. And for me, the excitement was to say, how do we how do we leverage this even more, right? To and and that's actually something we did last year. We put out a press release with a call to action to say to other campus communities, look, if we've been able to do this with a relatively small operating budget and endowment, nobody else has any excuse as to why they can't do it. So join us in relooking at all of your campus practices in continuing to reduce emissions, in doing, you know, reducing waste, looking at how you uh, source food, doing all of these things, looking at your investments. There are so many aspects to this, which I just quickly want to say really comes back to kind of that multi-perspectival, multi-pronged approach. Because climate, like so many issues that are world, our next generation are dealing with, right? Global health challenges, racial reckoning, financial challenges, a climate action needed. These are, you can't just solve this with one area of expertise. So to me, the uh, explicit commitment to the environment, to sustainability was right my area of interest of how do we look at big complex, intractable problems through multiple lenses. The way you described the campus and how, if you walk up to, as you said, if you walk up to anyone and ask them, you said something like that, if I remember right. When I visited uh, Patagonia's headquarters in Ventura, California, this is a few years ago. I mean, I got introduced by a former podcast guest who's one of the directors there, Vincent Stanley. And I could walk up to anyone there and ask them about sustainability. First of all, they're all on board. I mean, there's... People love working there. You know, they don't have to say like, we need to hire. Like everyone wants to work there, partly because of this. Mm-hmm. And actually, the, one of the first things almost all of them said was, we're not there yet. And you, that's actually something you just said was our efforts. Mm-hmm. But the culture there of, I don't want to say never satisfied, but striving mm-hmm. with a goal. And one of the big things I, I took away, I was sitting there at lunch with someone and you know, I just took this tour. It wasn't an official tour. It was just, um, they would like, I talked to someone and they passed me to the next person. They passed me to the next person. And so it was lunchtime. I, whoever I was talking to, I said, do you want to have lunch with me? And this woman talked about how when we were at lunch, she said like over there, there's, I don't know, they use something that could have been disposable at most other places. Maybe it was the cutlery or the glasses. Yeah. I forget. And she said, yeah, one person saw the problem with the old way, but had no way of solving it. The next person had a way of solving, but had no way of implementing it. The next mm-hmm. person implemented it. This is teamwork, and I want to contrast it with NYU. Well, actually, most buildings in New York City, where I am, a lot of the big buildings, if you there's like in the middle of the winter, there's someone with a, a fan on. In the middle of the summer, there's people with heaters on. Because okay. if you go to the super, the super says, you know, there's one room up there where if we don't cool the whole building down to 60 degrees, then that place is too hot. And so you just got to live with it. This mm-hmm. is the opposite. And there are many buildings where I just can't, it's frustrating. And I wonder if you've achieved a, a, a culture like Patagonia's, because it sounds like it, but I haven't been there. Now you make me want to visit this hidden gem. Yes, you're welcome anytime. So have we achieved? Yes, but I think your point is so interesting because it's not, there's no end line. The achievement is to commit to the constant efforts because you can always do more. And actually, this is just related to this. I had a fascinating conversation the other day with one of our 
really interesting young environmental science and sustainability professors. And we were talking about the fact that sometimes the solutions that we know work also create other problems that we haven't even thought through, which is so great example, electric cars, right? He was talking about the copper that has to be mined to create electric cars, right? That solve one part of the problem, but we haven't yet fully addressed the problems caused by extracting more copper, right? From those mines. So as he was saying, that's not a reason not to do it. But the point is, nobody has solved this problem yet. We have so many pieces to still work through that what I love about kind of being in this is that you are always trying to figure out what is our next goal. So just a great example, I was chatting with our uh, director of sustainability yesterday, partly in uh in preparation for this podcast and talking about, okay, so everyone's big question is, so you achieve carbon neutrality. Now what? And, and if I showed you the list of a full page, you know, some of this is we are looking more at community resilience and using what we know about achieving carbon neutrality and efforts towards sustainability to help make our local community more vibrant and more resilient and more sustainable, right? But the intersections there, quality housing, finding renewable energy in ways that can help save people money, that can create new sources of housing that is safe, that doesn't create problems of asthma, for example. These are New York City, as you know. These are big issues, environmental justice issues and getting kind of marginalized voices, even in our local community, involved in solutions that go beyond just Allegheny College achieving carbon neutrality. So I think, I do think we're, I don't know if we're quite at the Patagonia level. I think we're pretty close and we're a small campus. We have about 1600 students and about 450 staff, including our faculty, but everybody knows that this is a huge priority. Now, what's interesting is people live it in very different ways. So we have obviously this incredibly highly considered and highly ranked environmental science and sustainability department. So our faculty there live that every day, but they engage their students in these project-based research and learning opportunities. So you have your environmental science majors or environmental science and sustainability minors, but then just everybody on campus, you know, using reusable food containers on campus, or we have two uh, electric car charging stations on our campus, which is somewhat unusual here in the area where we're located. So some of it is just little things. And then some of it is everyone knows that this is a huge commitment. And so I think you asked about the sense of accountability that I have. I think a lot of people across this campus share that same sense of accountability. 
Yeah. One of the things I focus on in this podcast and my life is the cultural shift that most people who grow up in America and listening to this podcast, if they're not in America, probably grow up thinking about how uh, a certain culture and certain values, which would probably include growth of the economy, of the GDP, of the population, that would include extraction as something that would that benefits us. And many of the values, I mean, some values, I think, don't need to change health and family. Uh, but some values are from the perspective of how people grew up uh, in America up until very, very recently would say, not to travel the world is a bad thing. We, how could I be a proper citizen of the world if I'm not traveling, doing years abroad and things like that? Not to grow the GDP. How could we not do everything we can to grow it as fast as we can? That would be a terrible thing not to do that. If we don't do that, the infrastructure will crumble. Hospitals will close. Mothers will die in childbirth. And 30 will be old age again. And from that perspective, it's always like pulling teeth. Everything you do is like, oh, what more do you want me to do? On this podcast, when I ask people to act on their environmental values, I have not done a scientific study. So this is just a personal impression. But it seems that some people have done more already and some people have done less already. No, there's some spectrum. And I think you might think that the people who've done the least would have the easiest time thinking of something to do because there's more that they can do. In my experience, the people who've done the most tend to have the easiest time. I think a lot of people have read a lot of articles. Like, Here's 10 little things you can do for the environment. And they think, check, check, check. Okay, I got to get to 10 eventually. But I think of it as much more as when you get, when you, that's in the old culture. It's like, what do I have to do? When your values shift over, in my experience, when my values shifted over, I found more and more things to do. The more that I do, the more I want to do. Mm -hmm. The more that I find there is to do. Because each thing I do, I enjoy. Those who will scan your feed and Allegheny's feed will see that there's a professor. I, I just watched this video on fermentation. And I think he's a science professor. Did I get that right? Uh, so is it Eric Pallant? That sounds right, yeah. 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 And over here, I, I haven't done sourdough yet, but I got a chutney that's fermenting over there. I got some vinegar that's fermenting over there. I got some, I can't call it sauerkraut because it's, it's beet greens, not cabbage, but that's fermenting. And I, it's just because I unplugged my fridge because I wanted to see if I could do it, talking about re- living resiliently. And I just learned to ferment and it's wonderful. It's great. I love it. And that's the shift that I'm trying, one of the major things I'm trying to bring about, it sounds like it's happened there. Because as you said, there's no end goal. I mean, we, I exhale carbon dioxide, right? So, but I want to do more all the time. People sometimes say thank you, but it's not like when I'm picking up litter, but that's not, I feel like that's like thanking a parent for changing their kid's diaper. I mean, I guess it's making the world better, but that's what we're here for. In theory, yes. But, you know, so it's funny just to go back. You you obviously hit on like a, not a sore spot, but a real source of conflict for me, right? I am a globalist. I have lived huge parts of my life overseas in my former role, right? As Dean of Temple University's campus, the entire goal was to get students to come from institutions across the U.S. and spend a semester living overseas. But I struggle with this a lot because you certainly can be a globalist and a global thinker without ever leaving your local spot, but it goes counterintuitive to what I was raised to believe and what has truly shaped my entire approach and mentality toward the world, right? Which is this comparative view. I look at everything I do here in Meadville, Pennsylvania, and I think about 
well, what would, how would I have looked at that from the shoes of an Italian, right? When I was living in Rome, when I was doing other things, how would somebody from across the globe uh, interact with this? But your point is a good one. And I think sometimes we get caught up in the stress of feeling like we have to do too much. Whereas sometimes to your point, it's the little things that get you onto that path. So funny, you know, we are, we had always been city dwellers. We lived in New York city for a long time. Then we lived in Rome. So big, busy cosmopolitan cities. And now we live in very rural Northwest Pennsylvania, but we have a garden and using plants that come from Allegheny's organic garden outside our environmental science and sustainability building. So Allegheny College has what we call the environmental science and sustainability building is car hall. So we call this the car den, but we're also building an organic forest and an expansion of that organic garden up on our uh, land far a little bit further away from campus. But we now plant and grow vegetables and fruits, which we really never had the opportunity to do in an apartment building the way that we can now. And your fermentation story is interesting because we have someone who helps us out with the, ha- the house who has really gotten us into fermentation. And we just created many jars of sauerkraut, which my husband happens to love. We produced a gazillion small cucumbers from our plants this year. And we ended up canning them and making pickles. And so these are just small things. One of our uh, very well-known environmental science and sustainability professors, Eric Pallant, uh, just wrote a fabulous book on sourdough culture. And he actually has taught us all how to make sourdough bread. And while it became very trendy, right, during COVID and the lockdown for everyone to start making uh, bread and sourdough bread, he's been passionate about this for a very long time. And his book tells the whole history of it. And it's fascinating from a scientific and also from kind of a cultural and sociological perspective. So we have enjoyed doing some of those things. And I still feel like we don't do enough and I don't do enough. But my kids actually keep me way more honest because they are 10, 15, and 18. And this is the world they have grown up in where climate has never not been kind of an issue looming on the horizon. And they worry a lot and they have me worried a lot about, are we going to be able to make enough change to kind of save the world for them and for generations after them. A lot in there. You know, a lot of old people like me say, I'm so glad the next generation is is so active. And I think we should be more, we know more, we have the assets, we hold office. We should be leading them. They should be, to me, it's shocking that the people who are have been around the longer have been around longer. We should be in the in the lead. That's my editorial. Yeah, I think that the the joy that you described with the food, in my experience, I mean, when I challenged myself to go without flying for a year, I really thought this is going to be the worst year of my life because family, making a living, things like that. But as one, you know, after you commit, after I committed, 
and was like, well, this is the way it's going to be. This probably happened with you when a way I often describe it is if for someone who's lived in another culture with slightly different values than the one that one grew up with, if I try to live, I mean, I haven't tried to live in Rome for a long time, but if I tried to live in Rome for a long time and I tried to live as an American, no matter what, I think I hit a lot of friction. And at some point I would guess that most people decide I'm here, I'm going to live this way. And then a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense starts, oh, now I see it. Oh man. Yeah. After college, a friend of mine moved down to Little Italy here in New York City. And <laughs> it was crazy. Like I couldn't visit her without every single person around there knowing when I came and what happened. I was like, God, I'm like, can I do anything without everything? And she was like, yeah, it was like that for me at the beginning. Then I realized I don't have to lock the door. I don't have to do it. Like everyone's watching out for me. Yeah. And I didn't make that shift, but she did. And she really liked it. And when we make the shift, you know, then I started learning to sail. And then I started realizing that I can connect more with, this is my personal experience, that I could, when I think of cuisine as something that connects me with other cultures, instead of going to a restaurant and passively ordering off a menu, I have to learn and about the culture and practice it practically. Although generally I would find that, you know, I can go into most stores in, New York, in Manhattan and get a mango 12 months out of the year. In the winter, as it's getting cold, pretty soon there's going to be a lot of radishes and turnips in the farmer's markets. Mm-hmm. If I ask a New Yorker, when was the last time you bought a turnip? Generally, the answer is I haven't. And they say they want to get this other culture. The mangoes they'll describe as, as being exotic. But the turnip is actually more exotic in actual practice. And they mm-hmm. don't buy the turnip, but they could. <laughs> and that would actually be a cultural experience for them. And I, my experience is that by living how people here had to live, I mean, people lived here for 10,000 years or so. It's, I don't know the exact numbers, actually. I don't think anyone does. But something like 10,000 years. And they weren't dying. Mm-hmm. And so me living in this culture, I don't mean the New York City culture, but living locally mm-hmm. actually makes me, I think, more in touch with people living locally in other places. It's such an interesting point that you bring up. And it actually reminds me when we first moved to Rome and, you know, because I spoke the language fluently, because I knew we were going to be there long term, this was not just going to be a short time we put my kids in Italian schools, and we really tried to live like the Romans. And I'll tell you the most interesting part about it, a funny little detail. So my kids were big steamed broccoli eaters growing up. And when we moved abroad to Rome, they were two, seven, and 10. Well, if you shop at the local markets in Italy, everything is seasonal. And so the produce comes seasonally. And we couldn't, we arrived in late fall. There was no broccoli. And my kids kept saying to me, why don't we eat broccoli anymore? Well, because yes, it's true. If you went now, of course, the bigger supermarket chains, you can get anything anytime. But the local food vendors, the fruit and vegetable vendors who are on most street corners and that once you live there for a while, they come to know who you are and they know what you like and they start pulling the things that you want every Saturday before you even get there. You learn because of how they're set up what is seasonal, seasonal, you know, that you can't get cantaloupe until April. But again, my kids were eating cantaloupe all winter long in New York City. It wasn't very good cantaloupe because it had been shipped in from who knows where. But people talk a lot about, oh my gosh, the food in Italy is so delicious. Well, one of the reasons Italian food is actually incredibly simple. 
to make. But one of the reasons people love the food is that it's all local, right? So you're sourcing local fruits, local vegetables, local meats, local fish, et cetera. And it's just so fascinating that what people think is this elegant, exotic meal is actually just so much better tasting because it's whatever was available right there that day. And so I think living there and to your point, really embracing that Italian view on the world and that Italian way of life, which is a much simpler life, right? It's a lot about family. It's a lot about gathering with friends. It's a lot about cooking good, simple food, right? From the local region. Those are values that we've taken with us. That actually, in many ways, to your point about the local and the local, even if they're far away, it resonates much more with what we have found here in Northwest Pennsylvania than in many of the big cities that we had lived in. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Yeah, I've, I found it here when I look for, I mean, there's a co-op and the farmer's markets and I can, and everyone's like, oh, the farmer's markets are more expensive. And it's like, the, uh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you were illustrating a cultural shift that happens that if you want broccoli 12 months out of the year and you're, you're fine with it being shipped in from California and you don't care about the consequences of it, you can get that. But if you say, well, if I'm only getting local and I'm only getting seasonal, then that means I'm constantly getting stuff I haven't had for 10 months. Mm-hmm. And it's another view. I, there was a guy on my podcast. No, I, he wasn't on my podcast, but he's someone I work with and he's uh, a very important person in the decreasing plastic in the world. And when I asked him about something he could do to act on his environmental values, he's like, well, you know, my daughter really loves strawberries and it comes in plastic containers. Mm-hmm. And he really struggled to come to terms with what if his daughter couldn't get strawberries? And I couldn't help but wonder if his work professionally on plastic reduction might have been affected by his thinking, well, I don't want to reduce it all the way because I do want those strawberries. Mm. And leadership connects the personal and the systemic. And that's one of the big things on this podcast. Well, let me ask you, what, what does the environment mean to you? When you act on the environment, What's inside you, not, not what are the future goals of what you want to achieve, but what motivates you, what images come to mind or what, what do you think of when you think about nature? So what do I think about? Well, it's funny when you first said, what do I think about when I think about the environment? We talk a lot here about, yes, environmental action has to do with preserving land and uh, deforestation and, you know, the healthy water supply, et cetera. But it also, to me, as I mentioned before, has a lot to do with what does it mean to have a sustainable, healthy, and resilient community, right, that can self-sustain, that is not creating damage 
to the land, but that also creates kind of an equal opportunity for everybody to live a healthier lifestyle, for everybody to have opportunity to contribute, whether it's to renewable energy or safer housing options or eating better food, organic or not, whatever that is. So, but what I think about when I think about nature, of course, is, you know, I live in the midst of nature now in ways that I didn't always when I lived in a big city like New York or Rome. And here, the land is a huge part of what I experience every single day. And, you know, one of the, I'll just tell you another interesting story. I'm a big walker, but it's frustrating to me because distances are such here that I walk less than when I'm in big cities. I walk as much as I can. And we do a lot. We did a lot of walking, especially during COVID and being, you know, not traveling at all. But the temptation to get in a car and drive and therefore be separate from nature is so much easier here because again, I can't really walk to a supermarket. It would take me a long time and I would never be able to carry things back. Whereas when I lived in Rome, even when I lived in New York, I was on foot. I didn't even have a car right? So I was on foot all the time. So to me, that your question about what is nature, I think of nature as something I experience on my two feet when I'm walking or when I'm biking. Even I was one of the ways I put myself through graduate school was actually being walking and biking tour guide all through Italy and France. And so I believe firmly in being close to the ground. And actually that's how you understand what the space you're in is all about. So when you say nature, I think about walking or biking or being literally eye level with and physically present in the land that's around me. When you're experiencing it, what are you seeing? I'm thinking even before you were where you are now, because you've, you've you acted before this, and different people come, you know, people who grow up in the ocean, they see one thing. People who grow up, when, when you're in nature, what are your sensory inputs? Like, I don't mean lately, but like what, if there's any prototypical or something that motivates you most, does anything come to mind? Gosh, that's so interesting. The senses, you know, so I grew up in a pretty rural area in Massachusetts. And for us, traipsing through the woods, uh, cross-country skiing or taking long walks with our friends was ice skating on frozen ponds. That was what we did. And sometimes I think, gosh, we've gotten so far removed from that, even in this rural community where we live, the, the experience my kids are having here they don't go off and go, sometimes they do, but not nearly as much as we used to. So to me, there's a great sense of kind of, I think of so many things, right? So, so much of the hiking and the walking that I've done in my life has been in Europe, for example. So to me, it just conjures up all kinds of images of amazing hikes and things that I've experienced in nature. 
But I think a lot about my childhood and the freedom to have that kind of space to explore and the safety of having that kind of safe of space to explore. And I think that's part of what motivates me, that you want to preserve that as much as possible. Yeah. I only went skating on frozen ponds a few times when I was little. And there's really something magical about it. This is in Madison, Wisconsin where every boy grows up with hockey skates and I didn't know how to skate with hockey skates. And I felt like, oh, all I have is... ice was so thick. And then the cross-country skiing, you could just get around everywhere. It was really, yeah, to me, it feels magical. I think you, you said freedom. Mm. And, and I also hear that your kids don't have that. Is that environmental change or is it a times have changed? I think it's a combination of things, right? I think some of it is, you know, my sister, I have a sister who's two years older than I am. And so we were... We did everything together growing up and we would disappear for hours on end. And it we would go hiking through the woods. We would go skating. Our neighbors, we lived, as I said, in this very rural area. So houses were spaced pretty much between them. And our neighbors behind their house had a pond. It was a big pond. Like you couldn't even see fully all the way. It had an island in the middle. And our father taught us, we would go, we would stomp, we would go about 10 feet out and stomp on it and wait to hear if you could hear the cracks, if you, uh-huh. and, and we would test the ice, but there were no cell phones. So nobody knew, our parents vaguely knew where we were, but we would just go for hours and we would skate all by ourselves. And I would love for my kids to be able to do that. And frankly, we're probably closer to that here now where we are, where they could go off and do that. But again, you know, they'll have cell phones with them and they can always check in on things. There was both, I think it's the blessing and the curse, right? We were saying at the beginning of technology, you're connected all the time to everything, which is wonderful, but you don't ever get that freedom of knowing that nobody could track you down. And so I think it's it's a couple things. It's There are fewer and fewer rural spaces like where I grew up, right, where kids can just roam. There are still plenty of them. But as cities have expanded, right, and suburbs have expanded far beyond what they used to be, there's more construction and there's more building. And so I don't know. I mean, it was just a simpler time. Given what you said about that that freedom that you felt and this this vivid... I mean, I'm getting vivid imagery. It's probably from my childhood. It, it, it is. And given that freedom, but also the maybe a bit of lost freedom now. And I invite you at your option to think of something you could do to act on those feelings. Now, I want to clarify something I didn't say. I didn't say what's the most important thing you could do for the environment. What could you do that will save the earth? What's the biggest, most important thing? It's not about that. It, although some people do come up with really big things. But it's something that to act on those values of yours, to manifest them, in some way, long-term, short-term is up to you, big, small is up to you, but with three constraints that I've, I've come up with through experience. Something you're not already doing, something that you, you're not delegating to others. So it's not saying, oh, I'll get my students to do this. Or I'll get my staff to do that. Something you do with your own hands and something with a physical component. So not just reading or, or watching a documentary. I mean, by all means, read and watch documentaries, but then take the next step to doing something and something where you feel like you've made a difference. And the, the magnitude is not the issue but just that it's not just about thinking or planning. Mm -hmm. If you're up for it, then I'd ask you back to share how it went. 
afterwards. I would love that. <laughs> At this stage, almost everyone is like, I can't think of what I would do because they tend to be thinking of like, well, uh, you know, National Geographic said I was supposed to do this or that. But usually it goes back and forth. It's really, it's less about what you're supposed to do and more about what these things in your life and how to manifest something that's there a bit more and share how it goes. So I, I'm very intrigued by this. And how quickly do people come up with the thing that they want to pursue? Oh, sometimes it takes a while. It's usually something on the order of five minutes. Yeah. Some people have listened to episodes before. There's one guy who came on and uh, he contacted me. He's, I haven't met him in person, but he's a friend. He lives far away. Actually, he lived, I'll tell you where he lives in a second. And usually I don't tell examples, but, but something about your story made me think of him. So he's a school principal. And he said, Josh, I'm, he, he said, I want to be on your show. I've listened to a bunch of your episodes and I've been thinking about it myself. I've come up with something I want to do. <laughs> so he says, I'm going to ride my bike every day to school uh, for the whole school year. And I was like, great. Sounds great. So he's in Fairbanks, Alaska. Mm. Minus 40. He rode his bike, which I really love because that's, uh, I'm very geeky. And I know that that's where Fahrenheit and Celsius are the same. <laughs> and I learned from him that if you inflate your tires indoors and then go outdoors, they become deflated because PV equals NRT. <laughs> and so he had to reinflate them when he goes outside. And it was like really fun to hear stuff like that. So that was a rare occasion when someone had something before, but most of the time it goes back and forth. And almost everyone has to review some of the things that they're doing and, and bounce off a couple ideas. And it, it, there's a back and forth that goes to it because partly we've been taught, you know, meatless Mondays is like, you don't want to do this. I don't want to do it. You don't want to do it, but we kind of have to. And so I, one, of the, one of my life missions here is, is to shake that. It's like trying to live with an old culture, trying to live like an American in Rome. It, it, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be much easier to just shift to, oh, sustainability works. Not just works in like reduces emissions and pollution, but also is a simpler way of living that can, which is not a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. But I can say that. And everyone's like, great for you, Josh, but I like the air conditioner all the time. <laughs> and so you do your thing, I'll do mine. I don't think they realize that like, it's, there's a lot of joy to be had. It's experiential, experiential learning. Yes. Yes. No, I think you're right. I mean, so it's funny, you were just talking about the biking because, so there are two things that I've been toying with. We have been talking about eliminating all meat from our diets in my house. A little hard to do when you have three children who all have very different appetites and willingness to try new things. So one is that which would be eating only, let's say, local produce or eggs, or we have a, I have a bunch of colleagues who are wonderful. They bring me eggs from their chickens, right? So thinking about sustainable food that we could consume. And the other goes back to biking or walking and just saying, I'm not going to use my car for, you know, during the week or for a certain amount of time or things like that. Uh, because again, I think you're absolutely right. Even as a, at a place where I think about long-term, big picture, sustainability and resilience. And what does this mean for Allegheny College? What does it mean for our local community? What does it mean for higher education? What does it mean for the world? But then it's easy to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. I think I would like to try the 
going back to sort of my Roman approach and buying only local and sustainable, but also thinking about removing, again, meat, which we know creates all kinds of other environmental challenges from my diet. I think I had three things there. One was... I'm, I'm very over ambitious. <laughs> one was... Uh, maybe the first and the third one was the same. I think maybe you said one, said the other, and then said, oh, you're going with the first. Was it to say go local for a while as you did in Rome, but haven't quite done here? I think that would be... But also eliminating meat. And then I... But I think I could do all of them. I think also really reducing or eliminating use of my car. For around, uh, for around the campus, I take it. Even just around town. I mean, to even say like, maybe there's one day a week, right? Where I can do the couple errands I need to do, but the rest of the time we have to figure it out. Now I'm thinking, I'm picturing uh, like a headline, Allegheny College President is like seen riding her bike again. (laughs) I mean, it happens, you know, Eric Adams just got elected mayor here and he rides his bike. Bill de Blasio, by contrast, would take a cavalcade of SUVs from the Upper East Side to Brooklyn to work out at a gym when he's got perfectly good stuff right there. And he took some flack for that. And, mm-hmm. and he didn't get it. He, well, I, I haven't met him. I haven't talked to him, so I can't speak for him. But there seemed to be something there that, yeah, I think riding a bike is... is anyway, you're not, you're not doing it for others. Or you might be, but I... No, no, I would like to do it for myself. But, you know, it's funny. We had our first snow of the season this morning. It's now melted. It's actually a beautiful fall day here, but the snow season is long and they take it seriously here. And so part of me is thinking, and we're up on a hill, right? Where like many small colleges, Allegheny College sits up on a hill. And so I keep thinking, oh, I may have a number of spills along the way, but this could be an interesting experiment. It's funny. I, I think I was on your Allegheny's Wikipedia page that it says like it's very cold, but it doesn't shut for winter. It doesn't shut for snow. I was no. like, that's an interesting thing to see on a Wikipedia page. That is funny. Although it's uh, also funny. So it is true because everyone's so used to it here that weather has very little impact. That being said, my last spring in Rome, which was when I was transitioning to becoming president here at Allegheny College, they had the polar vortex and they did have to close for two days just because it was so dangerous for people to be outside. So, but generally speaking, we never close. Oh, in Allegheny, not Rome. Okay, those polar vortex. No, no, no. That was the polar vortex here in Pennsylvania that swept across the Midwest here in the U.S. So the next step is to make it a smart goal. So a specific, manageable, achievable, Hmm. realistic, and time-bound. Measurable, specific, measurable. So how long do you want to do it for and what specifically would it be? If you don't mind my getting to the specifics, because I find it's much easier to do something specific than general. Right. So I think in terms of the food goal, I would commit maybe for the next month to Uh eat a plant-based diet. And I think in terms of the not using the car is only is going to be complicated in part by the requirements of my job, which, for example, often require me to get to Pittsburgh. And one of the frustrations actually of this local area is there's there's really no public transportation that can get you from here 
to either Erie or Pittsburgh. It's one of the things that if I had spare time, I would actually work on a sustainable light rail system that would connect the two because it would reduce traffic incredibly. But so I think except for when absolutely necessary for work, I would commit to not using my car except for I'd say one day a week, maybe on the weekend just to do the bare minimum errands for the next month as well. Okay. Then could we schedule a second call for about a month from now to hear how it went? That would be fun. Okay. And just to make sure, so the these are connected to what you described of the frozen lakes and the and the, the freedom and the, that experience. Because sometimes people, will, they'll come up with something, they'll just say, they say something they read in, in you know, Greenpeace said that they should do. And it doesn't always work if it's not connected. Are these connected? And I don't know. I can't tell. Only the person can. So it's interesting. The walking piece, like whether it's on bike or on um, foot, to not use my car is absolutely connected because it brings me back to what we used to do. And I also think it sends a better message for my, especially my youngest, my 10-year-old, that walking everywhere is the way that we get around. And again, I'm a busy career woman with three children. It becomes very easy to hop in my car and drive to my office. But I think it'll actually make me so much more intentional about how I get from place to place, which then, of course, will bring back to me. We used to have to walk everywhere when I was growing up. It's funny. Yeah. um, One of my guests, uh, Nir Ayal, he just mentioned how he runs barefoot. And I'd gotten barefoot shoes, which are not actually barefoot, they're minimal shoes. And so last year, I was deciding to uh, go barefoot after having him on the podcast and learning about this. And my mom was like, we used to run around barefoot all the time, gravel, whatever, no problem. I was like, oh, it's taking my feet a long time to break it, like to develop the the thickness and the... (laughs) But then I started doing it and I really liked it. And... Yeah. Well, I do think you have to get used to it. It's interesting. We used to go out. Yeah. I mean, all the time where I was, but again, you just, these are things I think we've moved away from so much about like being physically present on the ground, right? Our world is much more about being in other vehicles or being in airplanes or just not having your feet on the ground. Yeah. It's funny that you're saying that literally, and I think also figuratively. Mm-hmm. Well. We're going to talk again in a month. I propose picking up here then. Although, uh, is there anything I didn't think to ask or anything that you might want to say to the listeners directly? Um, No, I would invite everybody to come check out Allegheny College and come see our little hidden corner of, uh, of, of Pennsylvania. And, and again, to think about, we're doing this on an institutional level. It's a little bit like what you're asking me to do on a personal level, right? That Allegheny College has said, you don't have to have a billion dollar endowment. You don't have to be a wealthy place that can kind of Uh, put all these pieces in place. If you commit to it and you commit to it on the long term, right, where the, the values just get passed along from one president to the next, from faculty to students, from people on campus to people in the community, it's a little bit like what we're talking about, this generational, it just becomes the thing you do. So that 
it would be great if just like each of us saying, yes, it'd be great if, you know, as we pass things along to our next generation of young people, right? It just becomes, we're all just all in and committed to the environment. But that's kind of what Allegheny College has managed to do. And so for me, it's a great model. So it's always, right? Like you think big, but you act very locally, right? But I think you have to do both simultaneously. That sounds like a great place to close. Uh, Dr. Hillary Link, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. 